Welcome back to the Clave Chronicles. I'm Rebecca Bodenheimer, and today's episode is going to be diving into some very contemporary Cuban music, a style of reggaeton called reparto. This is just a quick reminder to please subscribe or follow the Clave Chronicles on your favorite podcast platform. And if you've been enjoying it, give it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. So now I'd like to introduce my guest for the day. Mike Levine received his PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and is now an assistant professor at Christopher Newport University. His research revolves around reparto and the way it's circulated in Cuba over a USB-based internet called El Paquete Semanal or the Weekly Packet. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here, Rebecca. I am a big fan of the Clave Chronicles and really appreciate the work you're doing and representing this underexposed music. So happy to join the uh, uh, chorus of big names you've hosted so far. <laughs> so I haven't talked too much about Cuban reggaeton on the podcast, although it definitely came up in my conversation with Pablo Herrera on rap cubano. And I just wanted to share a personal anecdote before I get into my questions which is that when I was doing my own dissertation, dissertation research in Cuba in the aughts, I felt like I was seeing this musical shift taking place um, where timba or contemporary Cuban dance music had really been like the reigning popular music for the past like 10 to 15 years. It was, you know, really the sound of post-special period Cuba. And I'd, I'd say around the mid 2000s, I started to hear this shift in music being played out on the streets and coming out of homes. Um, and reggaeton was really starting to take hold on the island. I wasn't entirely happy about that shift at the time. And I felt like it sounded, you know, monotonous to me in comparison with timba. But I'd have to say that, you know, reggaeton in general has has grown on me quite a bit since that time. And there are specific songs that I remember from that time that were even starting to make their way into rumba performance, which was what I was researching at the time. And so rumba singers um, began to like insert these reggaeton choruses into the montuno sections of the rumba songs. And so one of the ones that was really hot at the time was uh, Havana rumba group Yoruba and Davo had this very popular singer, Ronald Gonzalez. And he used to take Elvis Manuel's song La Tuba and interpolate that into rumba songs. So it was like, y se me parte la tuba en dos, se me parte la tuba en tres. And, you know, when he interpolated that, it, like the younger members of the crowd would just go really wild. And I feel like just that act of like inserting these reggaeton choruses um, into rumba songs really like, helped sort of energize and, and grow mm. their audience and kind of mm -hmm. uh, kind of brand them as like a Roomba group that was, you know, more sort of modern thinking and just kind of trying to keep up with the mm -hmm. times and sort of more for the youth than some of the more, you know, traditional Roomba groups. What area was that in, if you don't mind me asking? I'm curious. In Havana? That was a... a yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. Because Yoruan, that was mm -hmm. like one of the biggest uh, Havana-based Roomba groups. Um, yeah, it was like, it was quite different than, because I was also at the time doing research in Matanzas, and there was mm -hmm, definitely mm -hmm. a much more like traditionalist bent there. Um, although, you know, the, the, the musicians themselves 
uh, the younger generations were definitely consuming reggaeton at the time, for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway, um, I just wanted to share that um, and as a way of kind of getting into uh, some background on how reggaeton kind of started, you know, becoming popular in Cuba. One of the things that I like to, you know, kind of stress in this podcast are, you know, sort of the transnational connections. Um, mm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. oftentimes that's meant, you know, me talking about the way that Cuban music has been exported and influenced other musics. But this is an interesting, you know, example of the reverse, basically, where we have musics coming from the outside and then kind of be ado yeah. being adopted locally. So. Mm, yes, absolutely. Um, first of all, I love that anecdote. Once we get up to the story of Elvis Manuel, we'll uh, talk more about that. But he, of course, borrowed substantially from rumba music so it's so fascinating to hear this anecdote from you about this um circulation of music going from rumba to mm -hmm. uh, reparto and then back again to <laughs> a rumba group yeah um so yes in terms of transnationalism reggaeton is a perfect distillation of what has been happening basically since the 90s until today it's one of the ways that i love thinking about reggaeton is it's one of the first popular styles of music to borrow substantially from both the Spanish and English Caribbean and mm, put both of those forces yeah. together. And you can't say that about very many other popular music styles. Yeah. Um, and of course, it speaks to technologies being improved at the time, just heightened circulation happening as well. Um, but to your point, uh, Cuba imported a lot of sounds and then, of course, distilled their own sounds made uh, as Cuban folks are uh, always do. They invented the new sound out of something that was pre-existing and brought together elements in their own unique uh, way uh, to reflect a domestic identity. Um, so to begin with where it came from, um, we'll have to go to the other side of the island, of course, to the Orient, to Santiago specifically. And that is the first generation of reggaetoneros. So this would put us at the end of the 90s, early 2000s with folks like El Medico and Candyman. And actually, as far as my contacts have informed me, the very first or one of the very first uh, reggaeton songs from a Cuban group was from a group called Marca Registrada, uh, based in Santiago. Uh, three-piece group and their biggest hit was Maria, Juana, thinly veiled, mm -hmm. you know, uh, yeah. idea there behind that track. Yeah. Um, but this track really set the stage for what this music was going to sound like, at least in the first couple of years around the late 90s, early 2000s of its distillation. Heavy, heavy influence coming from Jamaica. And that was coming from two different Jamaican styles and kind of meshing those together. And those styles included ragamuffin, usually referred to as raga music from Jamaica, which is a very electronic synthesized version of reggae. So instead of using a full band and all the costs and studio time that that would require to create a new reggae track, like the Whalers did, for instance, or Peter Tosh, mm. um, you could do it with a Casio uh, keyboard. You could do it with a Roland TR-808 or 909, just like folks were doing that were creating the first hip-hop tracks. Yeah. Um, and that'll come into play in the story, too, that genre. Um, so this music wasn't that fast. It was very popular in Jamaica. Uh, members of your audience might know the track Under Me Slang Tang from Wayne Smith mm -hmm. uh, from 1985, I believe. Very popular song that really put Raga on the map. And so you had that electronic version of reggae, so you still had that syncopation happening, but you didn't have that tracio pattern that we think of when we think of reggaeton. 
Uh, we think of that boom, da boom, da boom, yep. da boom. That comes more from uh, Puerto Rico, which we'll get to next, but also from the another form of Jamaican music called dance hall, uh, which mm -hmm. a lot of your listeners might know. Sean Paul, he's probably the biggest international name these days when it comes to dance hall. But dance hall is a very rich history. Yeah, uh, I hope they know the some movie. other names. Right, I hope they know some other Although names, if, too. It, honestly, yeah. it would probably depend on how old they are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Fair like, enough, yeah. fair enough, yeah. <laughs> the dance hall was a extremely popular music. Um, yeah. Every island at the time seemed to be doing something different with this Tricio pattern. If you went over to mm. Trinidad at the time, you get soca music, yeah, right? Yeah. And in Jamaica, you had this music. And in Puerto Rico, you had dembo, or underground music, as it was called, which was beginning to become extremely popular. Um, and also quite controversial by the mid-90s. So Puerto Rico yeah. already had a big um, underground dembo scene before it was called reggaeton with folks like Evie Queen, who is a legend, and The Noise and other early folks, um, Nicky Jam, for instance, that were uh, from that earlier generation. And so this music from Puerto Rico, from Jamaica, was being imported up to Santiago. I should mention that Santiago is a very old afro-cuban um community dating back to the late 19th century so this is pre-revolution uh they yeah. were imported as a labor force yeah and in much greater numbers in the early 20 in the first decades of the early 20th century yeah i, I write a little bit about that in my book too mm. yeah that sort of that caribbean connection you know yeah. the, the haitian and jamaican laborers that came to cuba certainly yes yes absolutely a lot of haitian influence too um and so, and you had a lot of Rastafarian uh, folks over there too, which gets us back to that song I brought up before, Marijuana, which is considered a sacrament, of course, within Rastafarianism. Yeah. Um, and so all of that was part of this cultural, this musical stew that was percolating inside of Santiago, much more than it was in other areas of Cuba. So in Havana, we'll get to Havana soon enough, they had some inkling of what reggaeton was but it didn't sound at all of like what was happening in santiago is much more influenced by what was happening in jamaica at the time um and i, yeah. I i'm sorry to to cut you off i'm actually married to a santiaguero <laughs> so he, so um and he you know he talks about how they used to listen to el general all the time um who of course yeah okay yeah. old school so like panamanian yes, so like the old yes, school like uh -huh. reggae in espanol i think they called it back at the time or um yes. you mm -hmm. know kind of like the first you know inklings of like what reggaeton might become um so yeah he remembers you know he loves that stuff el general being like this panamanian uh rapper who was kind of the, kind of one of the first right to do kind of do rap in espanol oh, absolutely um i mean i know that there's still like a controversy about who gets to own reggaeton because of that and you know because then puerto rico kind of really supplanted all of that but he yes. loves el general and remembers listening to that oh that's fabulous fabulous yeah of no one's quite sure who came up with the term itself although daddy yankee uh, takes credit okay. for it to this day okay <laughs> with reggaeton although i've heard other stories but in any case, yeah, El General was, was one of the biggest and still a legend yeah. for sure in Panamanian reggae and Espanol, um, along with a few other groups. And I would say it was, if we go back even further, right, to the mm. early 80s, that music combined with earlier Jamaican music, dance hall, like yeah. Shaba Ranks, for instance, and his song, Dembo, was the name of the track that gave the entire right. style its name. So it was that beat, that underlying tercio pattern that you find in that beat specifically and of course 
Shaba Ranks was Jamaican, so an English-speaking rapper um, and singer uh, influenced music, uh, rap in Espanol, right? Influenced something happening in Panama, mm, which was then exported yeah. by DJs like DJ Playero, DJ Nelson over to Puerto Rico. This is like the deeper history before, before it got, to Cuba, it yeah. got over to Cuba, yeah. but sure. Right, but yeah, it goes all the way back there to Panama because Panama was a, a confluence between um, Jamaican settlers and folks that were living in Panama. Uh, that working were, on the Jamaican canal. Jamaican folks brought over yeah. to work on the canal. Exactly. And I bring that up. Um, that's not totally disconnected because we were just talking about in Santiago, Jamaican folks were there yeah. as a workforce in itself too. So this is how these, you know, musical styles get circulate. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I think this might be a good time to get to the track that um, the first, one of the earliest songs after Marca Registrada is uh, from Candy Band. Back in the day when he spelled his name with a C, he's changed it after he changed his label. Now it's with a K. Candy I did not Man know that. Okay. Whatever reason. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. A few years ago, he decided to do that. But um, so his music is a perfect distillation yes. of these influences coming from Jamaica and coming from Puerto Rico that we were talking about. Because um, from Jamaica, um, you can clearly hear in the song that uh is arguably his biggest track mm -hmm. senior official uh switches between these highly syncopated reggae sections and then the tracio pattern that dembo beat comes uh on the floor and makes it a faster section and he's rapping in it very melodically um at the same time the song itself is a cover by an artist named eddie d who was a rapper mm. in puerto rico at the time so it's almost word for word a cover of that track, but the, the original track from Puerto Rico is a hip hop track from the late 80s. So it doesn't have the texture at all of what um, Candyman did to it, uh, but it has the lyrics, the idea of police brutality, police oppression, state oppression that Candyman was working with so controversially uh, when he wrote this track. Uh, but he took the musical ideas mostly from uh, Jamaica. Interesting. So right from the start there, we see this confluence between the Spanish and English, you know, areas of the Caribbean being pulled into this new sound, right? This new um, style of music that got its start in Santiago. And the track really conveys that. In, and, and like I said, also lyrically, it's extremely controversial. <laughs> it is a very controversial song, but particularly like, why is it controversial in Cuba? Yes, yeah. Well, in Cuba, so Candyman, unlike a lot of his peers working in Santiago, was considered a professional mm -hmm. artist. So he was paid by the state to create his music, unlike Marco Registrada, for instance, that were more working in informal circuits, as most reggaetoneros were right. even to this day. Um, so because he was professional and talking about uh, police brutality, state oppression, this was he was became persona non grata after that and i know you wrote a little yeah. bit about this as well um but he claims to have been banned for eight years from public performances um and the radios were only allowed to play maybe two percent of their broadcasts they were only allowed to dedicate that percentage towards playing reggaeton so he wasn't able to get his career right. off the ground and he blamed he lays the blame totally uh, uh because of what the waves generated from this from this and, and in terms of his career was this like was this his first like big hit this was definitely his first big hit this came out before he started releasing albums but it was one of his 
uh, it really put his name uh, all across the island, I would say. That's when people had really heard. And that, I would argue, is when most people had heard of right. reggaeton. Uh, Candyman, I got to meet him at the Primero uh, Festival de Reparto in Miami last year. And he claims to be the first Cubatonero. He doesn't, yes. he will not hear otherwise. I mean, us academics might argue a little yeah. bit about the timing, the dates of some of those things. But if nothing else, I could certainly give him credit for blowing up the style, so to speak, for making it uh, a known entity and for giving a lot of folks a path both to tread and not to tread mm. when it came to creating successful reggaeton music within Cuba, because he really pushed the boundary a bit too far. And of course, you find this with a lot of uh, Cuban music has a whole history of dissidents um and folks dealing with it and some folks getting a little bit away with it and some folks not getting away yeah. with it at all right and, and Candyman kept producing music after that he still produces music as I mentioned he recently changed the first letter of his name so he didn't go away uh but he did increasingly work with label representation coming from outside of the island and less with the state following um these eight year this eight-year ban you know, he had to turn elsewhere in order to find representation. There was no agencia de rap right. like there was for hip hop artists. I mean, that was problematic too. I'm not trying to say that was simple, but there was nothing like that uh, for reggaeton. Do you know what year this was? It's like right around the turn of the millennium. Right, right around the turn of the millennium. I would put this at um, about the year 2000. This is uh, very early on. Um, and again, it, he released it on records, on, on full-length records later, but as far as it being released and then passed around from BC Taxis on burnt CDs, that would be earlier in that uh, decade. Yeah, and if people want to find the translation online, like, I'm, I don't think that's hard to find, right? No, no, that should be available. Okay, so Señor Oficial by Candyman. Oye tú, Babilón, déjame cantar mi canción, eh? Máximo respeto al original vapor de Ragamo Finsodia. Máximo respeto al number one. Candyman con Gagoman y Puchoman haciendo clan. Una vez más, listen to me. La mercen, la mercen. Señor oficial, déjenme cantar mi canción. Señor oficial, déjenme ser como yo soy. Señor oficial, recuerde que usted hizo hace tiempo las cosas que yo hago. Does he, does he live in Miami now? Like, I yes. feel like he does. I feel like he's been here for a while. When we talk about reggaeton, we will also be talking about a long history of migration, for sure. Coming, yeah. uh, mostly leaving the island, uh, but a bit of returns as well. 
um, especially in a heartbreaking way when we get to Elvis Manuel, but we'll, yeah. we'll get there soon. Um, but yeah, Candyman moved to Miami. As I mentioned, he was part of the Primero uh, Festival de Reparto, which was the marketed at least as the first Reparto Festival in the U.S. And he was uh, a part of that, um, even though he doesn't himself identify specifically as a Reparto, uh, he absolutely is given accolades and considered to this day the father of Cuban reggaeton. So he's an important figure to center in any longer history of, of, uh, of reggaeton's invasion of, of Cuba. Let's actually get into the terms right now because, sure. yeah, like what would you like? I remember Cuban reggaeton sometimes being referred to as Cubaton. I don't know if that mm -hmm. was like just primarily a marketing yeah. thing where you would have like records saying like, you know, Cubaton or. Um, so yeah, like talk to us about reparto and where that comes from and what it means exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. So to to respond is I think this will make a good, uh, hopefully a, a good segue. Um, the term cubaton was a hundred percent designed as a marketable term. It was invented by a Swedish entrepreneur uh, named uh, Michael Miglis in the early two thousands. He was working with El, El Medico, full full name El Medico de Reggaeton in Santiago and was um, pushing his career in certain ways. Actually a great documentary about their relationship together um, on and off relationship. And Michael Miglis was, I won't get too into his story, but he absolutely, um, how do I say this, found some very unique ways to make money uh, along with, okay. <laughs> um, and, and along with and against the wishes, I would say of a lot of reggaetoneros. Um, Ooh, uh -huh. But he comes from a Swedish background, but just really fell in love with Cuban music. And the term is interesting because it gained a much more traction outside of Cuba than it ever did inside of Cuba. You would find, yeah. as you mentioned, mixtapes, burnt CDs with the term on it and USB sticks. But for the most part, the, the other term, which I'll get into in a second, reparto, timbatone, those different kinds of flavors oh, right. would yeah, be much timbatone. more heavily circulated, at least in my, you know, how I found it in my conversations with uh, with folks. But cubatone, if you go to Miami and... Um, uh, put on, I think it's a uh, 95.3. It's all Cubatone. That's how they advertise just that kind of music. So if, mm -hmm. if anything, that national identity of reggaeton, reggaeton being a Cuban thing has more of a traction outside of Cuba. And if you go inside Cuba, yeah. it's seen as more of a regional thing, I would say. Mm -hmm. Where in Santiago, you have this uh, Cuban reggaeton. And in Havana, this is where you have Reparto uh, begin its journey. And so to get into that term, the term itself predates reggaeton. The term goes back to timba. Um, so we're in the 1990s during the special period. Timba music, as you, as you mentioned earlier, uh, was uh, the most popular form of music uh, near the turn of the uh, millennium. And you had a bunch of folks begin using that term. Now, I won't get too into the weeds of footnotes, but I, I feel it's fair to at least say a little bit about what the term even means, um, and then I'll discuss how it changed uh, from the 90s until the aughts. Um, so the term was originally designed basically to identify new developments that were happening um, in the 1800s when Havana was moving outside of old Havana um, and into okay. other subdivisions that were being created as the city um, got bigger. I've been say the 18th century, this goes way back in the day. Yeah. So originally, these were uh, mostly Spanish settlers, but over time, and especially after the revolution, it became populated with mostly black folks. Um, and 
they began to become heavily, heavily populated. And these are the areas that contain Solares. These are areas like El Cerro, Arroyo Naranjo, uh, the municipality of Diaz de Octubre, mm -hmm. um, Los Sitios. These are the reparto districts. And if they ever had a positive connotation, that very quickly changed following mm -hmm. the special period. Um, the, the buildings just weren't worked on. They were uh, found in a states of disrepair. And a lot of folks I talk to still use the term in a derogatory way uh, that are from nicer areas like Vedado. When I go to those areas, people say, yeah. oh, you know, why are you writing about reparto music? Reparto, is which is the same thing they asked me uh, about rumba. Right. Why are right. you why are you studying this like lowly black right. practice? So, yep. <laughs> so all these neighborhoods that I mentioned, Arroyo uh, Naranjo, El Cerro, uh, Los Sitios, they thought of themselves as their own neighborhoods, distinct neighborhoods. Um, yeah. They knew they were in this reparto zone, but they didn't think of themselves as a shared, you know, translocal voice. Until right. Timba in the 1990s, a lot of the singers, specifically Michao Maza, who has sung um, most famously probably with Charanga Habanera, although he has his own orchestra as well, but he started um, referring to his audiences. At, and he comes from Los Sitios, so he comes from this area. He started mm -hmm. referring to his audience as reparteros, he invented a dance called the reparto that people would oh. move to in group settings um, versus couple dancing. And um, people were writing about him and saying he's bringing the reparterismo into dances. So it became this kind of translocal association that bound these mm. different neighborhoods together as a single music community. So like I live here in El Cerro, you live there in Los Sitios, but we share you know, these commonalities, we share this common musical history, you know, Timba's, yeah. you know, Timba's from that area, from all of those areas, I should say, you know, collectively, there's a great song from Enehela Banda called uh, I was Los about Sitio. Los Sitios right. and Sendero, yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, where yeah. they like call out all of these neighborhoods. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yep. yeah, there you go. Yep. That, that's exactly right. So these neighborhoods bound together as a single music community. So that's where the name was kind of floating in uh, the cultural space, so to speak, right? And then it later in the aughts with uh, Chocolate MC, he began referring to himself as a reparto. Actually, he became he referred to himself as the king of the repartos. More okay. specifically, um, he's created this whole dynasty. But um, now it refers both to the community and to the music itself. So I'll get into more of what the music sounds like. But I think to start with that, we should go right before Chocolate MC to the person who uh, is considered the true founder of this music, and that is Elvis Manuel, who um, you had brought up earlier. Um, yeah. Now, Elvis Manuel is not really considered the founder of Reparto Music. That's usually assigned to Chocolate MC, and I'll talk a little okay. bit about that in a minute, but Elvis Manuel is usually seen as the first person to give this local Havana uh, timba sound to reggaeton. And that had never happened before. So when so so it's kind of more of like a localizing of what was basically like a foreign musical practice. We should we could say a hundred percent. Yes. And I I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about the ways that government cultural officials kind of used that to denigrate it. Yes. <laughs> um. Even before Elvis Manuel, a lot of government officials referred to the music as vulgar, distasteful. Um, Juventud Rebelled, which is the newspaper of the um, Union of Young Communists, it's their yeah. newspaper, um, would refer to it as distasteful and rebellious. But mo but the biggest pejorative of all was that it was foreign. 
that this is not Cuban music. Uh, exactly. It doesn't represent our country's yeah. greatest, you know, product. So if you wanted to create this music, and for the most part, if you wanted to listen to this music, you weren't going to get it through state media, through state television. Yeah. Um, there's a few exceptions, one of which is the song Chupi Chupi, which is a very controversial track uh, that came out in the, um, I think, in 2007, 2008. Um, but that was yeah, banned I remember that song. shortly after it came out for a variety of reasons. Um, but one of the pejoratives, like the song is literally about oral sex. That's controversial yeah. enough. But if you read the criticism uh, from Grandma, for instance, at the time, they also mentioned that it's foreign, that it's not even Cuban music. So that's that's this age old, of course, criticism from Castroism is that we have to protect ourselves, right, from the influence of El Imperio and those kinds of right. things. So it, right, yeah, you know, right, which, you know, then kind of always makes it back to like um, the evils of Western capitalism. Exactly. <laughs> and this is something they're fighting against even while Cuba's neoliberalizing, right? That's yeah, true. even while like inviting in tourists and foreign investors, which is what they had to do. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. After the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah. But, you know, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but 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 trying to sort of, I don't know, gatekeep the ways that Cuban citizens kind of interact with foreign culture. And I should back up for a second. Um, I'm uh, afraid I, I don't mean to go out of order too much here, but I also want to just insert something that I feel like there's this narrative that reggaeton is, is in Cuba is always against the government and they were always battling, but that's not entirely the case. Um, one of the groups, um, Cubanito, um, Bente Cero Dos, they worked with the state for years. Their lyrics are fairly, if I could be honest, saccharine, just about saying, I'm Cuban and I love being Cuban. This uh -huh. goes out to my Cuban brothers and sisters. Those kinds of shout outs are all over their music. Um, they put the clave in their music, but beyond that, it sounds very Puerto Rican, what they're doing. And the lyrics don't have any um, innuendo at all. And in fact, those members from that group specifically came from a rap group called Primera Base. And, um, who I think Pablo Herrera has worked with, actually. Yeah. Um, yep. And they were made fun of for working with the state by bands like Los Adianos actually created a oh. satire of one of um, Cubarito uh, Bentisero Dos's songs called Matame. And um, Los Adianos did a cover of it. Well, not a cover. They did a satire of it, I should say, where they rapped and just made fun of these three folks for being sellouts. Um, Interesting. And then when you get to a band like Gente de Zona, they actually performed at the inauguration of Miguel Diaz Canel. So they, I, I did not know that. It's, it's hard <laughs> to think of at this point, post J11, right? Post the protest right. and their role in, yeah. in generating a sonic anthem for that uh, protest. But, but anyway, all this is to say that there, there are, you know, Candyman, obviously very antagonistic, but there are plenty of uh, reggaeton um, that that was funded by the state at least up until maybe around 2018, 2019, you would find uh, work like that. Um, whereas a lot of people didn't like that music, they were seeing, the government I think was seeing it as an outreach, you know, to, to the children, to the youth of, of how to create music that was acceptable to both. Even though it, I don't think it worked out that way. I think like the groups wouldn't be seen as credible, right? To a lot of the fan base if they were right. mostly with the state. You know? Right, yeah. And actually let's, I think you wanted to play a song from Cubanito Mentecerodos, no? Sure, absolutely. Back in the time when I was doing research, they were definitely popular, or at least I heard them on the radio. Oh, absolutely. Oh, for <laughs> sure. They were on the radio. They were on Lucas, which is a, a popular um, youth program on state television. Yeah. And I should also say, like, it just sounds, you know, like it sounds like another manifestation of what we've seen a few times 
during the Cuban Revolution, which is like the eventual co-optation of yes. music that that starts out being denigrated or not, you know, marginalized, not accepted by the state. And right. then the state mm-hmm. kind of kind of understands that, wait a minute, like we better we better give this some support and some funding and then try and, you know, maybe co-opt it a little bit. Um, right. Even going right. back to like Nueva Trova and, and kind of what happened with that. So absolutely. Um, Silvio Rodriguez uh, or even more so Pablo Milanese, like kind of rode that uh, boundary quite a bit. Um, and even um, El Silvito, El Silvio Rodriguez's son, has worked with Los Alianos, and, and that, that creates these. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so that creates these weird um, uh, issues for sure. Um, but yeah, yeah, we can definitely throw that on. That's an interesting song because I think most of the backbeat has a absolutely Dumbo like recognizable Dumbo pattern to anyone that's heard any reggaeton, but it also has a clave in it. Um, and they have a live band. And one thing I really want to um, just point out, this is recorded at Egram Studios. This is a this is a glossy mix. This is not like, can't even see your official. This is, sounds really nice. Like there was some money spent on this, you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so they have a live, ba- like, like a salsa band or like no i don't no no i don't think it's that big but they definitely had a live bassist and a live drummer um there's three members of the group um flipper uh white and nel doctor um and like i said they were they were part of a rap group um from havana so this is that's also an important part of this is this is what reggaeton ended up being in havana at least in the first decade or so this predates reparto but in the first decade or so this is kind of how reggaeton sounded in havana was it was much more puerto rican based but people were putting the clave in there um, but you didn't have as much of the jamaican influence as you did anymore as you might find in santiago based reggaeton yeah um and yeah i think like that's sort of some of the things that like jeff baker takes on in his book buena vista in the club and yeah uh, fabulous book yeah yeah okay so and that's called soy cubanito right yes soy cubanito okay we'll hear a clip from that Let's 
hermana se aburra con tus canciones y con las mías de los pantalones. No tengo culpa que tu empeño de imitar a los norteños se te olvide que tú eres bien caribeño. There was definitely a point at which Cuban reggaeton kind of gained some international yes. um, recognition. Um, although, you know, it was never and still isn't going to have like the recognition that Puerto Rican artists generally have. Like we started to see some artists, you know, being known outside of Cuba. Absolutely. Um, Gente de Zona is arguably one of the most successful popular music exports to Cuba since the revolution. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, they have done extraordinarily well for themselves. I think Alexander Del Delgado, whatever you could say about him, is a very smart entrepreneur, businessman, and you know a great singer as well. Um, they have a long history. They are one of the few groups, I would say, that has achieved quite a bit of success, quite a bit of popularity, but it maintained a good deal of credibility. I've talked yeah. to a lot of local artists in Havana, and I expect them to kind of make fun of Pente de Zona, which I shouldn't, but... Kind of like of music... like what happened with Orishas, how they're like uh, right. Orishas. It's like for, you know, foreign made or whatever. Right, Yotuel, yes. I, um, but a lot of them will, be, will really respect what, what he's built, and a lot of... Um, Younger no, man, Cubans duos. love Gente de Zona. <laughs> Cubans love Gente de Zona. A lot of younger duos really think of them as a model um, mm -hmm. for establishing their own careers. Um, like Charlie O'Hydren, a, a young uh, romantic reparto duo these days, are absolutely using the Gente de Zona formula to come up, and it's working for them. Um, but yeah, a little backstory. The, the group is really Alexander Delgado, excuse me, when it comes down to it. He began the group with two of his friends, also MCs. Coming out of Alamar, which if anyone knows uh, something about Cuban hip hop, that was the yep. birthplace of where a lot of the big names like Obsesión um, and Primero Basi, who I just mentioned, and uh, some other groups came from. Um, and Alexander Delgado came out of that area along with Jacob Forever and Nando Pro, mm -hmm. and they were the original uh, three members of Gente de Zona. And when they started their group, it absolutely had this Puerto Rican sound, this backbeat to it. Um, but their music was, how do I say this? It rode this thin line very well between being controversial, but not entirely unacceptable to be coming distributed. It wasn't blatantly about, um, you know, issues. Critical. Uh, critical, political, or, or obvious issues of sex. Even though if you looked for it, you could find that content. El Animal was their first hit. And that was a, a story about a young lady, um, La Palestina, who I know you've written about it. One yes. of your works, right? It's about <laughs> La Palestina, yeah. It's a great track. It's part of that immigration, right? Immigration from um, you know, Santiago yep. coming over to Cuba, uh, coming over to Havana, excuse me. Um, and so that gave them uh, quite a bit of local success. And then um, because of a tiradera, which is a, a feud between yeah. some of the members that is still combated to this day, so I'm not going to get into that. But Jacob Forever and um, Nando Pro left the group and were replaced by Randy Malcolm. And this is interesting to note because Randy Malcolm comes from Charanga Habanera. So you have a direct line to okay. um, Timba. Timba music coming from yeah. there. Now, um, you know, Hensi Dezona, not a Timba group, I'm not saying that at all, but they absolutely, this helps give them credibility, right? By yeah, and having, the, the sound, you know, the, the sound sure, is definitely the, the voice, like very yes. Timba adjacent. Yeah. 100%, 100%. Yeah, um, yeah you, I think, and you know, you could put them against, like, uh, contemporaneously at the same time, you had all these Timba groups, like very established Timba groups, sure. bringing in elements of reggaeton, right, for the younger audiences. 100%, yes, yeah. they were also going through 
that switch to greater or lesser degrees. But you still see team ups all the time between different oh, yeah, members. Yeah, yeah. W. Calzado has performed with Senorita Diana and other big Cubataneros um, just in the past few years. So for sure, for sure. Alexander Delgado's mission in interviews from the start was always to become more than just a popular local group. He always wanted to shoot for the stars, become internationally successful. And he said in interviews how he wanted to not use a specifically local language. He wanted his language to be more universal and something that could speak to folks beyond Cuba's boundaries. Okay. And boy, was he successful with that. Um, so, so did that mean like using less Cuban slang? Exactly. You got uh -huh. it. Exactly. Less Cuban slang. Um, you won't really find Acere too much in the music and every once in a while he'll pepper that stuff in there. Uh, but for the most part, um, it's more to place Cuba on an international map and to think of his national identity as representing Cuba to foreigners, right? So to yeah. folks in Miami, the quote unquote capital of Latin America, right? And to other, you know, fans of reggaeton in Peru and Colombia, you know, where there's other huge centers of this music. And, and it paid off tremendously. They've worked with um, uh, famous singer-songwriter uh, Decima Bueno for years and years and years. Um, and Decima Bueno works with Enrique Iglesias um, all the way back when Enrique Iglesias was signed in Colombia and now he's on Sony Latin. Um, and so all these So that's folks, how they made that link up. That's how they made that link up, exactly. And originally, um, so we're talking about the song Bailando, which is, um, for fans that don't know, is one of the highest charting Latin pop songs of all time. Um, it came out in 2014, but even to this day, it, it, uh, I mean, okay, it's a, it's a second to Despacito at this point, but it's, yeah, okay. it was, <laughs> which came out in 2017, but it- So it, had it like, did it break the record at the time? At the time, it absolutely oh, broke wow. the record. And if you go on YouTube, it has over 4 billion streams, the official video wow. uh, with Enrique Iglesias. Um, and the song itself tells an interesting story about the way Cuba's represented on the international stage. Um, originally, Decima Bueno wrote it with it, uh, Enrique Iglesias, but they shelved it. And then Decima Bueno recorded a version of it himself with Gente de Zona backing him up, and it became a hit within Cuba. Enrique Iglesias heard this and is like, oh, this is a great song. I need to do this track. And so it was re-recorded uh, with Gente de Zona, with Decima Bueno, and starring Enrique Iglesias. Now, Enrique Iglesias, of course, is a Spanish artist. And so this is an interesting song for a few musical reasons too. If you listen to the track, if you listen to the verses, what Enrique is singing, you'll hear the shuffle flamenco style rhythm. And if you hear the parts where uh, Alexander Delgado is singing bailando, it converts to that um, dembo pattern at that point. So yeah. you can even hear it just within the notes themselves, how they're balancing between uh, reggaeton, and this other kind of rhythm that's that's more particular to Spain. And of course, the, the lyrics are about, I mean, let's just be real, they're about nothing, right? They're yeah. about dancing and having a <laughs> yeah. good time. I mean, I don't mean that as a pejorative. I'm just yeah, saying yeah. this helps a pop song to become popular, right? Is <laughs> because it can move across borders because of that, yeah. right? There's a remix with Sean Paul in it where Enrique Iglesias sings in English. Oh, okay. And so they add another person to the cast who also is from Jamaica, of course, right? A dance hall artist, right? So that speaks to the background of reggaeton, but also says like, oh, we'll do an English version too. So this is like a song that's absolutely not meant just for Cubans, right? It's meant it's right. meant to have Gente de Zona legible to an international yeah. audience, right? We could say similar things about um, 
La Gozadera, where yeah. they just shout out different names of Latin American nations, right? <laughs> yes, which I actually like. I actually oh, no, like totally, totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that one's, of course, their collaboration with Mark Anthony. Right, um, right. Yeah, it was right, like right. all in the same time period, right? Like a period of like. Absolutely. All within the same time period. And, um, you and know, it really I, did. I mean, it was it was a winning formula, right? <laughs> Absolutely, 100% winning formula. I mentioned that Henry de Zona sung at the inauguration of Miguel Diaz-Canel. Um, they sung who is, this song. Who is Cuba's is... Cur current very unpopular president. Correct, for sure. <laughs> uh, that could be a podcast in itself, but yes. <laughs> Handpicked by uh, you know Raul Castro when he decided to step down and the other octogenarians that run yes. the Cuban government. <laughs> you, but you... It, highly unpopular. You are 100% correct, for sure. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that allowed the song, all of these, um, you know, great ideas, uh, universalizing ideas, I would say, uh, help the song, uh, to become as successful as it was. Um, one other thing I want to mention, if your viewers care to take a look at the video is that there's no pereo in the video, you know, mm. there's nothing sexually suggestive. Okay. There's group dancing. It's essentially... And perreo is sure. a, perreo is a is a form of dancing uh, where the woman's back is to the is to the man, uh, and that's actually a term used in Puerto Rico. In, in Cuba, they use terms like despelote or temblar are 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 more commonly used, but the dance is fairly similar. But what's interesting um, is that the dancing in Cuba, you'll find a lot of group dancing as well as couple dancing, and a lot of the. Uh, Mm -hmm. and a lot of the shows mm -hmm. have been to too. And even in the videos, you'll find men dancing without necessarily even being around women. Like it's, it's, um, it's, it's part of that. Um, but yeah, all this is just to say, uh, to get back to Bailando, that the song had that Dembo beat, arguably it introduced that rhythm to a lot of folks that had never heard it before because it was such a popular song. Um, but it was a very safe reggaeton song at the same time. Do you, do you think that it even like, um, I mean, reggaeton was all, already quite popular then, but maybe it had a slightly, obviously a lot of overlap, but maybe a slightly different audience than people who would consume like Latin pop, you know, like Enrique Iglesias, like Shakira and like all, you know, like the big Latin pop stars. Um, do you think that this song itself actually like helped make some inroads for oh, reggaeton yeah. on a more like global scale among like a larger you know, um, audience I for think Latin so. I think that's a, that's a great question. And I believe so. And I say that specifically because the English language version of the song, um, which you can also find on YouTube with Sean Paul also has over, I believe that is over 2 billion views as well. And so I feel like that was a real effort to reach wow. Anglo, the Anglo world, so to speak, right. To, to, to reach the English mm -hmm. speaking world that might not have liked Gasolina back in the day. Right. But now they can get uh, uh -huh. into this track with Enrique Iglesias and, and certainly Enrique Iglesias has a lot of English songs, of course, that wasn't new for, for him, uh, but it was definitely new for uh, Gente de Zona. And it was, it was um, something that you didn't yeah. find in too many reggaeton tracks either. So I, I believe um, it did reach past, like you said, a, a more traditional musica urbano or you know, Latin American audience in that respect. Yeah. Um, was there anything else you want to say musically about the song before I play a clip? Um, I think that should do it. There's a lot of Spanish guitar in it. So for fans of De Sima yeah. Bueno, that's his trademark. So you'll, you'll find that all over the place. But, but otherwise, yeah, I think it'll be interesting for viewers to hear the switch up in the beat um, between Enrique's verses and when um, Alexander Delgado sings Bailando. Hey, 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 hey,
like reparto yeah. oriented i think that a band that bands like uh cubanito bendizarados and gente de zona are uh, really describe reggaeton's high watermark of being accepted by both the cuban state and international markets making money and making sound in this way that was um acceptable to a lot of folks that otherwise might not listen to reggaeton at the same time, um, groups like Cubanito, Bentecero Dos, uh, and Maxima Alerta, um, they weren't as accepted by a lot of younger folks because they found their lyrics to be quite saccharine and acceptable. And this, I think, is a good background of where Reparto comes from, because then you get into Elvis Manuel, who began producing music around the middle of the aughts, middle of the 2000s. And his music was quite a bit different than what was happening uh, with those more popular uh, reggaeton groups. It was also, he's from Arroyo Naranjo, a very difficult, desperately poor and, and predominantly black reparto district in Havana. His music was also very different than what was happening in Santiago. So what Elvis Manuel was, is uh, he wasn't a rapper. That wasn't his background at all, which is what you found with a lot of reggaeton groups at the time. He was, um, he was a singer, he was a sonero. He um, took a lot of... Yeah, he had or, a nice or, voice. Absolutely, beautiful voice. And he took a lot of his vocal ideas from timba groups that were that were popular at the time. Um, and he sung that, but he used uh, reggaeton beats underneath him. And even more than that, that already is localizing, of course, and gives him a distinctive, you know, idea. I mean, he sounds so so great as, um, as, as you know as well, that I think that alone would have established his career. But what really set him apart was his lyrics not about um, acceptable notions. They were, uh, some of them got quite explicit, I'm not gonna lie, but I think even more pertinent was the fact that a lot of them were very local to the situation of a lot of folks that were living in these Erpato districts. 
for instance, in the song um, El Ditu, El Ditu is literally a chain of these kind of co-op <laughs> little, I don't know, for lack of a better word, convenience stores, even though they're yeah. not the most convenient thing in the world, but they were set up during the special period as a means for Cubans yeah. to get basic provisions. And uh, they're very sad affairs these days, especially. But everyone in, in Havana, I mean, I'm sure everyone across Cuba, but everyone in Havana would definitely know what that was. Yes. Gente de Zona, Alexander Delgado is not singing about LD2 in, in his Yeah, music. yeah. It's an extremely local uh, point of identification. Elvis Manuel was doing that. And he was talking about shopping in LD2. And yes, he was being very sexually suggestive by some of the ways he was using it. But it connected him to his fans um, in a very local way that really no one had done before. And um, this is why he is seen as the, if not the first reparto artist, the immediate predecessor to the first reparto artist, who is usually regarded as Chocolate MC. Chocolate MC was an acolyte of Elvis Manuel. He, um, Elvis Manuel trained Chocolate MC in, in using tools like Fruity Loops and Cubase to create work. Um, okay. And Elvis Manuel works with a DJ called DJ Jerry. You'll hear him shout him out in a lot of his music, including El Dito at the beginning of it. Um, but yeah, there was a really, um, just a very different style of music when that initially uh, came out. It was very different than Cubanito or Maxima Alerta or Gente de Zona. And uh, because of what he gave birth to in terms of this new genre of music called reparto, uh, he's now seen as this um, origin story, so to speak, of, of where this music came from. Yeah, although I, that may have to do with uh, with his tragic death, right? In some ways, uh, kind of as a way of, and I'll let you, I'll let you talk about that. But I don't, you know, in the ways that people are kind of made into martyrs. A hundred percent, yes, he definitely is seen as a martyr um because of limitations in working you know he wasn't able to work with the state producing his type of lyrics and his sound and um internet access at the time was extremely difficult mm. so he felt the best way to make money as a lot of artists did at the time was to go to miami and so in april 2008 he uh boarded a ship in pinar del rio and went from there and um crossed the straits well his idea was to cross the straits of florida and end up in miami where he was hoping to be signed uh, by a label, but unfortunately his ship capsized en route and him and uh, I think four or five other members of the of the ship unfortunately died um, en route there. They never recovered his body. Um, his mother was actually on board the boat as well. She survived, thankfully. Um, yeah. And if anyone's interested, there's a documentary um, uh, in oh. which his mother talks about Elvis Manuel growing up and talks about what he was hoping to find, you know, had his ship uh, made it over to Miami. So. Mm, what's the documentary called? Oh gosh, I don't remember. That's a great oh, okay. question. Yeah, okay. I, 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 yeah. Okay, people, people. Okay, it's in people Spanish. Just Elvis Manuel documentary. Yeah, I, yeah, it's like, I would assume so. Something like El Documental, Elvis Manuel, something like that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, he never, he never would have reached the heights of being known by English language audiences at all. Right, because, right. Uh, because of his, because I mean, and he was yes. probably in his mid twenties or something when. He was very young. Yes, he was very young. I believe he was uh, 21 when he when he passed away. Oh, God, 21. Very yeah. sad, very sad. Um, but as you mentioned, his story has really become an origin point, a metaphor um, for what a lot of Cubans have to go through and for a lot of what this music has gone through uh, in the past decade and a half since his death. Um, the music has traveled 
from parts of Havana over to Miami, where it's become enormously successful, but it hasn't lost its local viability. Um, mm -hmm. What Elvis Manuel represented was something very specific to the people in these reparto communities, and that has been retained. And people that create reparto music are expected to represent those neighborhoods, right? Like you might find with rappers as well. You know, they're expected yeah, to represent yep. certain areas. Uh, you don't find that as much with other styles of cubatone. Um, I mean, people will represent where they come from, don't get me wrong, but this is tied up with a specific sound in music as well. So if yeah. you make reparto music and you come from Santiago, it's a little weird. That's what I mean to say. So reparto musicians usually almost always come from these reparto areas. It doesn't seem... I don't know. I guess I, uh, it doesn't seem um, improbable to me that like some reggaetoneros in Santiago would start like doing the same things basically oh, sure. with Santiago in the sense of like the, that sort of a hyper local, like calling out those specific things that are, you know, the things that are specific to Santiago yeah. and kind of appealing to those. Uh, like I could imagine it. Um, but I mean, the other thing that happens is that like a lot of artists in Santiago find that they really can't have much of a career unless they go to Havana. That is <laughs> like I that that, that that's a that, yes. that's a big trend as well. So absolutely true. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Um yeah, so I don't know if you want to play um LD2 and then we'll Yes, absolutely talk about what that gave yep. birth to. Oh no. So Chocolate um, was already making reggaeton himself. He had recorded um, tracks with Osmani Garcia, La Voz, for instance. Um, he came from a district very socioeconomically and racially similar to where Elvis Manuel had come from. Elvis Manuel came from, as I mentioned, Arroyo Naranjo, Reparto District, um, Chocolate MC. Um, his real name is Giovanni, Giovanni Hernandez. He came from an area called Los Sitios, which is heavily associated with timba music. Mm -hmm. um, and Elvis Manuel kind of took Chocolate under his wing, taught him a lot of work, gave him this idea of using reggaeton, not just to get popular, but to represent 
these local Reparto neighborhoods to put that message into the lyrics, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of identity um, into the lyrics. And Chocolate MC ran with it, not just in his voice, uh, but he made the further development of changing the musical style to represent these local areas as well. Um, as I mentioned, Elvis Manuel, if you listen to Aldito, the backbeat is heavily sounds Puerto Rican. It's heavily sounds reggaeton. Um, really what he's doing differently is in his voice. Chocolate MC takes that Puerto Rican Dembo, strips it down to its core. So you just have that bass beat and he wraps it around a timba pauta or timba pattern throughout the whole, uh, throughout the whole track. Um, he puts in a son clave, hmm. uh, two against three son clave, and he adds um, EDM synthesizers, um, pads on top of that. He heavily auto-tunes his voice. So he takes a lot of mediated ideas that are yeah. then in vogue in general, but he applies yeah. it heavily into his music. Some of his earlier work um, it does a lot of this work lyrically. Um, El Palón de Vino, for instance, one of his first tracks, pulls together both sexual ideas. El Palón is used as a reference to discuss his penis, but it also discusses his work in Abaqua, um, mm -hmm. which he considers himself a part of that fraternal society as well, and representing that. Um, the chorus of the song is representing his Black identity. The lyrics literally are, soy negro, soy feo, pero soy tu asesino. I'm black, I'm ugly, but I'm your assassin. So it's coming across as being empowered, but to some folks as, as threatening. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I'll, and I'll just uh, note that Abaqua, I haven't really talked about that. It's an all-male secret society um, that has roots in, in the transatlantic slave trade and the origins of, of this, well, religion or secret society. Some people don't consider it exactly a religion um are in in the calabar region of nigeria and um it has kind of a long history in cuba of being criminalized and denigrated as just kind of like the worst stereotypes about black people and african culture that you could imagine like being associated in the early 20th century with cannibalism and right just like uh very i would say you know of all the afro-cuban religions which especially before the revolution were, were definitely, um, you know, thought of as, you know, backwards witchcraft and, you know, right. possibly uh, Abaqua kind of has that added element of kind of being dangerous or, you know, associated with criminality and just, uh, you know, antisocial behavior in general. And you absolutely. Know, yeah. and, and all the heavily racialized coding exactly. that comes from those stereotypes as well. And uh, Chocolate took those and ran with it and kind of threw it back in the face of musical gatekeepers and says, mm -hmm. well, I have the, you know, technology had improved a bit by that point. We're now in the early 2010s. Um, he was able to record the music himself. He was able to circulate it out to labels uh, himself too. He didn't need the Cuban state anymore. Mm. Um, at the same time, in order to record music successfully, he still couldn't say anything too controversial or it could potentially put his career, if not his freedom in jeopardy. And so he came as close to the line as he possibly could, especially in an, another early track he recorded in 2014 uh, called Bahanda. I'm sorry, 2018, 2018. Um, so this track is another play on words. Bahanda, as Chocolate does a lot, he invents words. Okay. <laughs> so he feminized <laughs> the word Bahando, yeah. uh, which means going down so you could 
think of that in a sexual way. You could also think of that as punching up. He's um, taking a shot politically at gatekeepers and okay. saying, I'm coming after you, you're going down. Um, mm, okay. And so the lyrics of this song, I think, personally, I think they're, they're brilliant. The way he talks about politics in as explicit a manner as possible without being explicit. So the folks that he talks about, the song is about partying, going to Las Comparsas, the Carnevales, so going to parties with his friends who he characterizes in the song as mice. And the mice want to party, they just want to have a good time, uh, but they want to do it at national landmarks like La Priagua, the Malecon. Um, meanwhile, the cats are telling them that they can't party, they can't have fun. In the song, the chorus is Gato dice meow, meow, meow. <laughs> it sounds kind of silly, and it is. It's supposed to be yeah. memorable and fun. Yeah, yeah. But he's also making a social point. The mice aren't allowed to speak in the song. Only the cats oh. are. So in the track, the cats are allowed to talk. They're allowed to threaten the mice by saying what you can and cannot do. Yeah. And Chocolate Meanwhile is representing these poor mice, right, that just yeah. want to have fun. So um, that's the way the song lyrically uh, conveys ideas. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it was controversial just from that. Even given the coding I just mentioned, the song was banned from airplay. It wasn't allowed to be circulated for about a year or so, even on Epicate Seminal, which I haven't talked about too much, but it's the nationwide USB drive. Yeah, I, I did. I did actually want to ask you if you could just kind yeah. of briefly explain sure. that because it, it actually goes beyond reparto. Like it's like this whole thing Absolutely. in the past decade that is so important, you know, yeah. especially in, in Havana, like where you can get it. And but, even, yeah. you know, not now even even wider. Um, so, yeah, I'll just ask you maybe to talk about that a little bit after we finish talking about the, the song. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So Bahanda, um eventually um, spread anyway. It became a very popular political anthem at the time, and in many ways paved the way for Chocolate to get gain the notice of labels in the US and fund his leaving um, yeah. um, Havana. And in his own words, when he reached Miami, he said he finally took the path that Elvis Manuel had started mm. to, had tried to take a decade earlier. Although did he, he did, did he come over on one of those boats or or did he, he actually fl okay. he flew? Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. So he, he, he did not take a boat. Yeah. No. He, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but he definitely connects himself to that lineage, yeah. that cosmology now when you think of reparto as I mentioned, he calls himself a rey de los reparteros. So he considers himself part of the king of this dynasty yeah. of reparteros and Elvis Manuel is a sort of um, godly figure, um, blessing him and, and all the folks that Chocolate deems worthy of being part of sharing that dynasty with him. One other thing I want to mention about Bahanda that was new to this style of music was in all the other tracks I've played, uh, that, that you've played, excuse me, by Lando, um, or Soy Cobanito, for instance, you have a verse, you have a chorus, you have another verse, you have a chorus. What Chocolate did is he brought Timba not just to the backbeat, but to the entire structure of the song. So now you don't have verse and choruses as much as you have gears that you would find in Timba music. Um, you have a presión section where the music will stop and then the singer will usually repeat something. Um, there's, uh, he'll, he might say por eso in this track by Bahanda, he sings por eso, por eso, that's why, that's why. Um, and then after that, a Montuno section happens after that. So this further makes it a Cuban, natively Cuban genre, mm. as opposed to just borrowing, you know, from, from foreign influences. So it's embedded within the sounds and it's embedded within the structure.
that you'll hear of Bahanda and pretty much every Ribardo song that's come after that has tailored itself closely to this formula in, in more or less degrees. The very, very um, influential track and Chocolate MC, there's a lot of um, deservedly negative things we could say about his personal behavior, but professionally speaking, he's been extremely um, influential on, on the growth of this, of this genre. Yeah, well, that sounds not unlike a lot of other musicians who are, mm-hmm. you know, who, who have pushed music forward in a lot of ways, but whose personal behavior has a lot to be desired. A hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. So let's um let's just let's play Bahanda, and then we'll just maybe wrap up with a little bit about El Paquete. I should have maybe asked this before, but the Paquete Semanal is, or the weekly packet has been this um, innovation, I guess you could say, um, you know, within the last decade, I don't know, maybe even more um, with, it's it's sort of like this, you know, inherently like transnational um, form of media mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it's like this way that, Cubans in Miami have kind of sent different forms of media down to people in Cuba who couldn't access it otherwise. So could you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. Around um, 
2008. So around the time when um, Elvis Manuel uh, left uh, Cuba, there was the inklings of USB network beginning to come to fruition inside of Cuba. I should back up by saying in Cuba, there's only one internet pipe that extends from Venezuela called the Alba One. Mm. And if you don't, if you're not able to attach to that, you can't get internet. And so even if you can, it's usually very slow and unreliable. It has improved as of 2023, but back in 2008, it was almost entirely inaccessible. There was no 3G, there was nothing like that. And so to get around those restrictions to you, to your point, uh, folks from visiting from, let's say, Miami would bring USB sticks down to relatives and friends. And these became very popularly traded, containing all kinds of media, um, movies, telenovelas, K-pop, <laughs> sure, Mexican telenovelas, video games, soft, cracked software. Um, much of the software that I mentioned earlier that are used to create reparto tracks, Fruity Loops, Cubase, most producers tell me they got it from oh, they get okay. cracks versions from from this package so when it first began it was a local usb trade in parts of havana but it became a lot more than that very quickly eventually grew into this hierarchical capitalistic enterprise with folks at the top of it called los matrices there's only three or four of them from what i understand they have funny pseudonyms like Delta Vision, Crazy Boy, uh -huh. and they have satellite dishes hidden on their rooftops to gain access to internet through satellite. They download media that they think will be marketable. Then they farm that media once it's downloaded to folks that are called paqueteros, packagers, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. those folks will take that media and they'll divvy it out to different neighborhoods and they might tailor and curate that media further to appeal to the interests of the residents uh, that they represent in their particular uh, area. And uh, there's even sub paqueteros that deal in even smaller slices oh, of population. Wow. It grew to become an enormous media network. Honestly, it became the largest media network in the entire country. Um, and one of the <laughs> biggest employers too, for a time. And like I said, it's changed yeah, in 2023, but in the, in the 2010s, it, yeah. was, it was tremendous. Um, it became a social tool, like wherever I would go to hang out with people, I had to have a USB stick, right? Because yeah. it was considered expected of me to participate in this trade in the sharing of media with one another. And so in many ways, this is how reparto music became popular because the music was too controversial for state censors. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't so explicit that it couldn't be traded on um, the Paquete route. Mm -hmm. um, the golden rule of El Paquete Seminal is no politics and no pornography. Okay. Uh, because these Paqueteros and the Matrices would be scared that if the government found anything too explicit yeah. on these devices, that they would get in trouble. That they yeah, right, because you, I mean, yeah. with something so widely disseminated, you never know in whose hands this, exactly. This media might fall and, and it, you know, so like, yeah, you don't know. Um... The Cuban state does this. They make it illegal, but they allow it. Yes. Um, even though they want you to or know they that like, they're no, aware they, of they it. They know. Right? They right, know. Exactly, they just kind of exactly. look the other way. Which they is look the like, other way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is, of so course, it, how it is about with like everything that is quote unquote illegal, you know, like selling 100%. things on the black market, but which they know that everyone does. And a hundred percent. Or 100%. like when they do that, you have to do anything yeah. in, in, down in Cuba from from bread to K-pop songs, right? You, it works 
there's similar kinds or of like markets. With the satellite, like I remember, like like my sister-in-law saying, "Oh yeah, like they they did like a raid whenever," which means like they've come and they've okay. like cut down all the satellites of people who had like illegal satellites like streaming in like Univision right. into the. <laughs> oh yeah, they cut the satellite. Yeah. They just like do you know intermittent raids to, to you know kind of. Absolutely. So it works for them in both ways because it lowers tension. Be like. I will go out of my mind if I don't get access to the right. internet. Well, at least I have this, so that lowers you know tension from a boiling yeah. point. But at the same time, you know you have the sort of Damocles there because if you do something out of line, right, they they reserve the right to enforce the criminality of this object right. whenever they feel like it, right? So it makes everyone it turns everyone into a criminal, basically. Yeah, yeah. You know, but at the same time, as I mentioned, it allowed the wide dissemination of this music because the music was too controversial for state media, but not controversial enough. You know, if anyone's, if you listen to sort of Porno Pano Ricardo that made punk music, this isn't that. Yeah. Reparto's not that explicit. Right. It's like Bahanda, that song I was mentioning, where it's coded, but it's still um, controversial enough to not be acceptable to the state but fans love it right so it's credible to the local fan base and so this kind of network this usb network really dovetails with the story of reparto uh, both of these networks both music the music and the um, usb trade grew over the same uh, duration of time over the past decade yeah and they both kind of fed one another you know fans that wanted reparto had to get usb sticks right and fans that wanted to participate in el paquete um, would absorb a lot of Reparto, Reparto because yeah. that was a huge part of what was within the folders of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, this has been a really great, fascinating conversation. You know, kind of sorry we have to end it. <laughs> Likewise, but thank you for having me. This has been a a, a lot of fun, and I've really appreciated um, the opportunity to uh, talk about Reparto and Cubatone with you. Yeah, yeah. And thank you for your time. It's been really interesting. And so, yeah, thank you very much. Absolutely. Likewise. And I, you know, look forward to uh, to hearing it. And with that, I will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>